Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and all it takes to produce customer per perceived value. Today, I am thrilled to have Rachel Headley, uh, Dr. Rachel Headley, who is uh, somebody I've known for some time, and, and I was really excited to get her. Uh, she is uh, what they would call in Boston, wicked smart. She uh, not only has been a rocket scientist, but she has herded rocket scientists. Um, and she has take, gone from there to focusing on team effectiveness and leadership, uh, is the author of a great book, uh, IX Leadership, which we're going to talk a little bit about, and creator of a culture typing system. Rachel, welcome. Thanks, Mark. It is great to be here. It is great to have you here. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the background, the, the uh, journey that got you where you are today. Oh, the, you touched on it. It's quite exhausting to think, think back over the journey. But no, I actually started as an earth scientist and I loved, uh, I really wanted to be an astronaut and get into aerospace engineering. But I graduated high school a little early and the only aerospace engineering schools at that time were really far from home. And my dad said, uh, no, you can go to the state school. You'll, it'll be fine. You can transfer anytime. So ended up um, kind of getting an end around into aerospace through the study of the planet and uh, earth science. So I started out as an image analyst looking at images. And then I, uh, over, over 20 years, ended up being the operational science officer of that same mission called the Landsat satellite mission. And, uh, and you've all seen the data. You've, uh, it's the base map for all of your uh, cell phone mapping and Google Earth and all that good stuff. And so that was kind of my first, uh, you know, my career through the ages. And the, the thing I learned most about that is that um, I wasn't cut out to be an image scientist because uh, I was told how to like name my files and stuff. Like it was very structured. And that's just not, not, it's not my magic. So after I got to stand on top of a rocket two days before it launched, uh, I thought uh, that might be the coolest thing I do in this job and started thinking about what I wanted to do next. So that's started my own company and uh, really looked at change and how people deal with change and culture and how I can make everyone's life a little better. So that's what we do now. That's, I, you know, I love that. And that's why I wanted to have you here because I talk with my clients about giving everybody a focus on the customer and de-siloing and uh, changing the culture so that everybody is pointed at customer and within the customer, customer perceived value, that mm -hmm. golden nugget within customer centricity that really matters. And there's a lot of cultural change involved mm -hmm. in that. And you and I have talked extensively on some very long car rides uh, about that. <laughs> and so um, I, I would love to have you share a little bit about your culture typing system and how you help your mm -hmm. clients with culture change. Yeah, well, you know, the I was just talking to somebody the other day 
about on on Saturday actually about there's a new leadership program, new cohort, and I was talking to them. And and I think the thing that we don't realize is when we ask people to initiate a big change, we are actually creating this wildly erratic energy field. And so some people who like change will jump on that and their energy goes up and down and I'll get all excited. And other people that don't like change will immediately kind of start pedaling into resistance and pushback. And so the interesting thing is a lot of us people that want to see the world be better, different, change how our our whole model in the company thinks about customers instead of um, whatever they may have been thinking about before, um, we are actually instigating a wildly erratic and different phase of how we work together. And I don't think most of us really appreciate what we're asking people to do. Because those of us who love change, we find it thrilling and interesting. And and what you, I love yours and um, your mission about this customer perceived value. And, and that seems at some, at some level, a very like basic, let's get back to what we need to get back to. But at the same time, you're asking people that that don't think like that to change that is just a massive request and i don't think we i don't think we actually give it enough credit so what we see what what my company does we have a culture types assessment uh, that we actually can go into an organization and tell you listen we're going to start this customer perceived value effort and kind of de-silo change the way we think about customers and and how we're um, honoring them in the company and this, this is how the reaction is going to be. I can tell you, Mark, to one of your clients, if you go in there, I can tell you who's going to resist that change, who's going to be excited about it, who you're going to have to kind of bring on back in because they're going to be off running in a direction that you don't actually want them to go and things like that. And having that strategy for me, it's like, how do you ask people to do these big things without having the data. It's like you would never invest your money in anything without having data first, but yet we make these decisions that affect our people, which affects our bottom line and our customers without having the data first. So for me, it's a kind of a one-on-one, get the data about your people so you know how they're going to take, take it on. Yeah. And that's, that's what I always found interesting. I mean, the, the world doesn't really need another personality typing test mm. yeah you're right there's a lot right? of them <laughs> but here's here's the thing uh all of the other ones that i'm aware of talk about who you are as a person what you value and as a result of who you are how can i bring you in to the mm-hmm. group or, you know how do these two people work together right you start with how people work together it's the assessment yeah. is about how people work together, how they're most comfortable working together, how what makes them uncomfortable working with who and what you do about it. So this is this is not a personality assessment. Mm-hmm. It's a teamwork co working with your cohort assessment. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's a different thing. And I I have always thought that's really there's an there's an insight there measuring that directly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in a lot of, frankly, leadership training, and that's where a lot of these assessments come in. And, and that's very important, of course. We want people to be self-reflective. You know, you, in, in the customer perceived value, you want to be able to look at yourself and your work and your team's work and say, are we 
playing into that? Are we focused enough on that? So you want to have that self-reflection piece, but at the same time, if you don't turn all that energy into how are we going to do this as a team? Well, then you lose all of that energy trying to, trying to touch one-on-one. I mean, that's the other thing we hear a lot too, right? It's sort of like, how do we, how do leaders or, or team uh, leads, they have to get to know every single person on their team and that's how you motivate people. Well, who has A, who has that kind of time? And B, I think that kind of gives a pass to big companies where oh, above a certain level, they can start saying, well, I can't possibly know 10,000 employees. So we're just going to start making decisions, you know, that doesn't really relate. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and so that's, to me, it's almost like how we do business today is actually allowing us to like, gives us an excuse to not deal with it. And I love that too. I think there's a lot of parallels with the customer perceived value because if I feel like my customer is an internal customer, I have to make the ops guy happy or instead of the customer, then all of a sudden my focus is on the wrong piece, right? So how do we break those things? And yeah, so I, I think that's what you're getting at is, is really important in that the whole reason you have a group, the whole reason you have an organization is that many hands make light work. Until, right, the, until the team is working at odds with each other, then one plus one is a half. Right. Yeah. So um, the whole point of having groups of human beings work together is the synergy and mm-hmm. harnessing the differences and the different talents, different talents and the different skill sets. That's the whole point. And if you haven't figured out how to bring a team that you hired purposely because they bring different things to the table. Yep. If, if you don't have a, a way of figuring out how to knit those into a, a productive team, um, you can struggle against internal friction. Oh, and that's such a, it's such a miserable way to work too. In the, if you have, if you can't figure out how to make that sing, it's just misery, right? It's the yeah. eggshells. It's the elephant in the room. It's the people. Like I've talked to someone the other day. She woke up crying every morning having to go to work. And I just thought, oh, I forget how miserable people are at work. But yeah, you're right. You know, and that's the thing I love is at the core, we have to have people that love change and we have to have people that resist change. Because if all we have are change agents, nothing ever gets done. Cause then you're not, there's no one to hold you accountable to the thing you already committed to do. And if you have everybody that's all no change or change resistant, then all of a sudden you get bureaucratic, you get bogged down, you get, we've done it that way before, you know, those, all those old, all those things that we hope not to say. So, but the trick of the matter is we need each other desperately to actually have a, a functioning, effective, dynamic, um, you know, committed team but we drive each other crazy at the same time. Um, I would love to have you tell a story about a sample, right? In, in your book, you talked about a, you know, a team of four friends who w- went on a canoe trip, right? Right, yeah, and you, yeah. And you described each one of these people as, you didn't say this person is a fixer, uh, which right. is one of the types, but you said this is what they're like. And yeah. Um, that was a really great illustration of how those people could drive each other crazy. Um, and you feel free to tell that if you'd like, but do you have a real life example of a team that 
should have been functional, was composed of really functional components, but just could not get themselves into a team. Yeah, well, it happens in the smallest of ways. Um, one way that I love uh, talking about, which was um, there's a there's a small team and they were doing a new nonprofit. It was a big leadership effort. And it was a husband, in this case, it was a husband and wife who were, um, the husband had run for office, a gubernatorial candidate, and lost, um, but made a good showing. And so they decided to parlay their energy and enthusiasm into a leadership um, program where they could have more influence over community engagement and doing good things. And so he was all excited and was developing all of these ideas and what they could do and who could be a part of it. And she, meanwhile, she was at home um, and stayed up till like 2 a.m. typing up the bylaws of the new nonprofit that they were going to set up. And the next day they get together and they're over coffee and she's looking kind of sleepy. And he says, uh, you know, Kelsey, well, how come you're so tired? And she goes, well, I was up till 2 a.m. getting those bylaws done. And dang, they're so great. And I'm so excited for you to see them. You know, they're, I don't know, 15 pages long. And he's like, his first reaction is, well, no one reads those things. And, and right. And wow. in just, in, right, exactly. In just that moment, you know, um, and they have a lot of love and all, affection. So you can get over a moment like that. But you can imagine if that's in an office where you don't know each other, you don't have maybe trust built up just an offhand comment like that. Cause he was probably at the coffee pot, you know, going, Oh, well, no one reads those anyway. I mean, thanks, but no one reads them. You know, all of a sudden he's, she has complete her. He has completely devalued what she finds the most important. And so for her, she's very organized, very order tolerant, what we call order tolerant and needs to have things in order or else she does not thrive in a work environment and he's the opposite he wants to just he's the whiteboard guy he wants the ideas all the time so that's one way that just oh. instantly can create tension in an environment that unless you say well wait a minute those bylaws are really important don't you think and kind of work through it that little crack between them could actually in a work environment especially can become yeah you know, three months later, you walk around the whole building so you don't have to go in front of their desk, right? Like, ugh. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, a great example. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that would never thrive in having to write those bylaws. I, I know why they're important. Right. Because, because I have been experienced in business long enough to have uh, come into a conflict where we had to dig into the bylaws in order to avoid... Uh, real serious repercussions. So those bylaws right. have to be there. They have to be great. They have to be well thought out. Uh, otherwise, you are totally screwed. Yeah. Um, but man, for the life of me, if you ask me to do it, it it, uh, no. it just makes my skin crawl, right? I know, right? But the important part is you could do it if you had to, right? So that's part of the other magic about a team environment is that some people thrive in that. Some people hate it. But at the end of the day, if you had to put your head together with somebody and gut it out, you could do it. And that's the other piece is that if you feel like you're all in it together, then you can really do almost anything as a team. And that's one of the most important aspects of our culture type assessment is it's not so much, it's important to understand who you are and frankly, lean into it. Like, uh, you know, the great thing about you knowing that, you know, you're not the bylaw writer is then you could say in the board meeting, you could say, you know what, I am not, I'm not 
the guy who wants to review the bylaws, but I will help, you know, I'll host the next big charity event, right? You can lean into the things that you love to do and honor ever other people. Yeah. But if you, if you got to do it, you can, but yeah. that's not how you want to be most of the time. And that's really important to see, understand how you see the world differently. Yeah, it kind of takes me back to uh, when I worked, one of my first jobs, uh, worked at this company, W.L. Gore, uh, and they didn't have job titles or job descriptions, um, and they didn't have bosses. There was no M's. They didn't use the M word, manager. And uh, you had a sponsor. And what you did was you made a commitment. Your job was your commitment. And that is you commit to the organization to the whole, what you're going to do and what you're going to be responsible for. You're free to commit to anything or to nothing, but what you commit to, you have to be accountable for. Hmm. And so when, and it ended up being about as structured as any other company, but um, the idea is three of us are, there's three people's worth of work. These three people are going to come together to do that three people's worth of work. And you're going to divide it the way these three people are best at dividing it. Makes so, sense. Um, so we're not going to make three job descriptions and fit people to the job descriptions. We're going to fit the job descriptions to the people. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. And, How big was the organization? I'm curious. Uh, they were, at the time, they were a couple thousand people. Uh, yeah. They just cleared a billion dollars in revenue. I think they're two and a half-ish now. Um, but they, with this culture, they would grow a factory that made a product up to 200 people, 250 max. And as soon as that 200 person social group was reached, they would subdivide it and build another plant and move half of them mm. into another plant. So they knew that that culture was size limited. And Interesting. Then, uh, we're, just, we're just going to metastasize into more and more micro plants and we're not going to build anything that takes scale that needs more than that. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's one of the things that we do with our culture type assessment with, if you want to do cultural change or if you're having trouble and you're trying to figure out your team dynamics, we actually take what you want your culture to be and where you are now and do a bit of a gap analysis. And the nice thing about them is it sounds like they've figured out that that size limit, exists and a lot of times we're not we're not we're a lot of times we're just too close to our own teams and our own work to really get an like that perspective on it and so that really tends to help because we we do if we talk to the staff the executive team will think one thing is going on and of course oh we're great at this and then the you know the rest of the whole company is like we stink at that why would that's terrible so we get to do uh we get to kind of help get alignment with that. And it sounds like that's a great example of they kind of know who they are and how to make it happen, which yeah, is pretty unusual, actually. Well, and I'm told, you know, I left there 20 years ago and I'm told that things are not the same. I imagine they're still a great company um, and they still believe a lot of the same things. But um, as they grew, I'm sure that there was yeah. some, you know, we all get mission creep, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but they, um, uh, they, I learned a lot about people and about teams and about leadership and followership uh, versus managership at that. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm really grateful for that experience. 
Thanks for having this conversation. It kind of took me back. Remind you. I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting because we have, it's just such a fascinating time because we're in this big transition, um, in the middle of this big transition, sort of mid-pandemic, post-pandemic, early pandemic. We don't really know. Yeah. And people are trying to figure out who they are a little bit more closely because, of course, a lot of teams are a lot smaller now. And how do you think about... Um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a huge emphasis on the customer perceived value and, and connecting with the customer. Um, and then, and we're on the same end, but on the opposite, how do you make sure that your humans that you have both either retained or now will employ because of furloughing or whatever situation you might've had, um, how do you keep them engaged in a new environment? How do you, what's the culture you want? Is it different if people are in the office as much? Like Twitter said, you know, you never have to come back to the office. And, you know, that's a massive change. But does that mean they can live in Spearfish, South Dakota and still get their, you know, Silicon Valley salary? And so it's just a really dynamic work environment, whether you're in manufacturing or in, in engineering. And so it's, I think we're going to see a lot of cultural upheaval at the workplace too uh, in the next six months. Yeah. I don't say it in my book. I, I thought it and then never wrote it and said it. I, maybe I, I thought it and said, that's a little too distraction, too much of it. And it takes, it takes the book right. off point, but value, I talk about value being in the mind of your customer, but value is in the mind of anybody who's buying and that's your mm-hmm. employees. They're trading their mm-hmm. life they're trading their time for something. And so you have to provide valuable careers. It's gotta be worth more to them than what they're giving up. Mm -hmm. And And your stockholders and your vendors and your customers as well. Um, so I, I think totally. you, you help leaders create cultures that are more valuable. Um, Mm -hmm with very little more cost than what it costs to hire you and engage you as a consultant. Oh, well, it's um, the interesting thing about the value of the internal of the internal piece is so interesting, Mark, because um, we, that's what we talk about all the time. It's the, so many people are focused on the customer experience and, and that's, and people have, and, and companies have invested millions, talk about in costs of consulting millions of dollars and training documents and all of this stuff, the customer journey and all of these things. But often it's being executed by people who don't have this value that the customers have. So we look at it as internal experience. So take that customer experience, all the time and attention we put on that and flip it around and look internally and what's the internal experience of your people. And to use your word, what's the value that they have because frankly if your employees and your staff and your vendors and your board are getting value if their internal experience is exceptionally good they're gonna take care of your customers they're gonna want your customer they're gonna want to understand your customers in out backwards forwards because they want to have this company survive and that is all about your customers and so for me it's like uh part of i think it's really interesting because i think we're tackling the same challenge from this two different ends but i think it's going to accomplish the same thing which is have everybody in your organization be thrilled to be doing the thing they're doing 
and the people that benefit the most, of course, is the customers, but of course the company then benefits from the customers, right? So I just really feel like if you have people, if your internal experience in your company is, is exceptional, then you're going to have exceptional customer service. You're going to have exceptional, um, that doesn't mean you're going to be selling things that customers want. Of course, that's where yeah. you come in. That's well, where you come in. But. No, and that's, uh, who is that? Sir Richard Branson says, yes. you know, your internal stakeholders, if they aren't happy, nobody's happy. Right. Um, I've talked to somebody else who dealt with uh, automobile dealerships and mm -hmm. a Porsche dealer was telling their employees, we, we're, we want to be the Porsche dealer that provides a great customer experience. And you would expect that a high-end automotive company would think that that's, um, you, that's non-negotiable. 101, right. Yeah. Um, but their mechanics, the kids who wash the cars did not feel valued did not feel like the company went out of their way for them. So what kind of a dealer experience do you think they gave to their customers? And um, there you have it. We all know what we should be doing. Those people knew they should be giving a great customer experience, um, but they weren't, they weren't and willing it, to go that, that, yeah, extra that, discretionary, that discretionary effort is what you're trying to get. Yeah, and all it doesn't even take that much. It might just be that you, give them another, you know, a smile or a hello. I mean, it's not like we're asking, it's not like you're at, you would expect people to give a huge amount more. It's really about, and actually I would argue that sometimes it's actually more exhausting and more work, frankly, to be in an environment where you're not valued um, because it's miserable and it's exhausting and it's energetically draining. And so it is so much easier to work in an environment where you feel valued and important. And, and I can totally see that. I mean, just a, uh, my dad was actually a car salesman and, um, and he was the number one salesman in his, uh, um, what, what did we just call it? The, uh, dealership. the dealership. Yeah. Thanks. He was the number one salesman forever in his deal. And the only reason that he was, or the reason he was, is that he was always excited to see people and and he loved cars and he, he wanted to help people find the car they wanted. He was just so excited about it and he loved it every, every day. He loved meeting people and figuring out what the, how he could help them. And people would come back from years after he quit years looking for him. And so it doesn't take a lot. It's way more no, fun. It doesn't take a lot. Uh, tiny differences, lot. tiny differences over, over and over with every one of my clients, tiny differences make a huge difference for your customer. Um, I love that you said that because we say that all the time. People come to us and think, or they don't come to us because they think we have to burn down their culture and start over or, oh, we're going to have to just tear everything down. It's like, no, it's tiny little adjustments. You know, it's tiny little adjustments in, um, oh, that's how like my, my co-founder and I, she is not, uh, she's much different than I am. She's an independent, I'm a fixer, but she's almost an organizer. So, and those are our words, but she sees the world very differently. She's self-driven. She doesn't need to come to the office. She's fine doing the things that she does. I have, I want her, I'm a co-founder with her because I want her in my space. Like we, I'm a team person. I want her around. And so it's, she would come in late and I'd get so pissed and be like, why aren't you here? I'm here. You should be here. But I didn't ever talk to her about it. And I got mad. And then we ended up having a conversation. But at the end of the day, like if we can't have that conversation, 
but it's only one conversation. It's a, Hey, I, I've been here since eight and it's nine Oh seven and I'm upset. I don't know what to do. She's like, Oh, well just tell me I'm happy. I can be here at eight. I just didn't know. And so it's tiny, just tiny little, what we call unspoken conversations often, which make the difference between success and failure. And it's just small things. But it's a big thing, helping people learn how to have those small conversations. So what you do is very big and is very important. (laughs) And um, I was thrilled to, to have you. So if people want to learn more about it, how can they get a hold of you, Rachel? Well, we're very active on LinkedIn. I should, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, Meg is also out there reluctantly. That's her self-driven side. Sure. Um, LinkedIn, uh, and I'm Dr. Rachel MK Headley because there's other Dr. Rachel Headleys running around. Um, and then also our, our website is rosegroupintl.com and has a ton of stuff out there too. But you can find us. Just get Google it. You'll find us. Cool. Uh, Dr. Headley, thank you so much <laughs> for your time today. Did I, you know, we could keep going, but um, um, maybe, I love it. maybe on the next car ride, a long car ride. Oh, heck yeah. Oh yeah. Well, some, one of these days we're actually going to get to see each other in person and then we yeah. can, uh, then we'll, then we'll have a lot of talking to do. So yeah, that's cool. that was great. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate being here. Yep. So thanks everybody for joining us on the, another episode of the Value Clarity Podcast, where value is something that we believe only exists in your customer's mind, which means that your success is all in your customer's head. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be your dues cause you'll be singing those old don't know value this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com <laughs>